0: Amen, it 's a good thing to pray uh, before we open up god 's Word and if you do have a copy of the Bible with you to invite you to open it up to John chapter nineteen to continue our series going through the Gospel of John that we started in January of two thousand and eighteen, just going through it verse by verse, and we 're uh, spending a lot of time in the last chapters, which just cover a few hours we 're now uh, Friday morning john nineteen one to sixteen is what we 're going to be looking at today and as you turn and open to that, uh, just, a, just an observation about the world that we live in. In our world, when important people stand before a crowd, we roll out the red carpet. Sometimes even literally, in Iowa Falls a couple of years ago, you remember when Hugh Jackman came to, for the premiere of his movie to our little theater downtown, they literally rolled out red carpet because Hugh Jackman was coming to Iowa Falls. During college, I worked at a hotel at the front desk where then presidential candidate George W. Bush was going to stay. And so all of the the, the kind of pomp that went into and all the security that went into welcoming into that place was something to watch. You've been to a concert before, maybe even the concert in the park this past week. And and so they have a couple of artists, as kind of opening artists before the main band comes. And you know when the main band comes, all of a sudden the lights look different, the fog starts coming up. And before they even sing a note, the crowd starts to cheer. I've been to one Vikings game at U.S. Bank Stadium. And when they introduce the starting lineups, they have fire that like pops out of all these places, and they even turn a blast from the heaters on so you feel like you got hot all of a sudden from the fire because they want you to get fired up for these guys that are going to go chase a ball and, and tackle each other. When the judge enters the room, the people stand. And when you have an opportunity to be in the presence of a king, you enter by bowing down, and in many cases, when you're going to leave so that you don't turn your back on the king, you walk backwards out the door. So when important people show up and stand before a crowd, we find ways to honor them and roll out the red carpet. We've been singing songs of worship and praise to Jesus this morning, highlighting his greatness, We sang together, every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ. For through you and for you it was made. Your creation endures by the order of your hand. so you must have in all things the first place. We sang this morning because he's worthy of it. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Jesus, we sang this because Jesus is is worthy of all worship and praise and glory and honor. This is true, isn't it? And now we turn to John chapter 19, and we see the contrast of how King Jesus is welcomed. Today we will see Jesus in John 19, mocked, abused, condemned, and eventually delivered over it's true that Jesus is the true king Jesus is the true judge but we're going to see him experience this kind of treatment instead it's sobering to look at it's extremely important to look at it's meaningful for our lives today and so we open up God's word and we read John 19 to 16 if you're able to would you stand as we read God's word Let's pray first. Uh, Father, uh, just repeat the prayer that we all prayed together in singing. That you would come and you would awaken our hearts. Our hearts that are prone to wander, prone to get sleepy, prone to start to love, all sorts of other things. And our minds, would you come and illumine them? Our minds that are so filled with so much information all the time. We scroll through a whole bunch of stuff on our phone, taking stuff in, looking at stuff on screens, hearing stuff in school. But God, I pray that you'd help us to focus in now, that by the power of your Spirit, you would come and awaken our hearts and illumine our minds and magnify the greatness of Jesus Christ as we see Him clearly revealed in His Word. Here in John 19. Do that for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's hear God's word from John 19. Read verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you Would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement. And an Aramaic, Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Amen. You can be seated. When we left off last week at the end of chapter 18, Pilate, who is the Roman governor, he's not Jewish, but he's been put in charge of this area where all of the Jewish people live, under the rule of the Roman Empire. And Pilate seemed conflicted, a bit caught in the middle last week. You see, the Jewish accusers, they already had their mind made up. Jesus needed to die. But Pilate was not convinced. They wanted Pilate to rubber stamp it and to be the one to carry out the execution. But Pilate wasn't so quick to do that. Pilate said, one time last week, I find no guilt in him. He asked them what their accusation was. And their accusation was really pretty vague. And when Pilate questioned Jesus himself, Pilate found that Jesus didn't seem to him to be too much of a threat. He said, I don't find any guilt in him. But they didn't like Pilate's verdict. And so they kept at him. He thought he'd give Jesus another chance to be set free. He said, you want me to release to you one man? And instead of saying, release to us the innocent King Jesus, they wanted the the guilty robber and insurrectionist named Barabbas to be released to them instead. And that's where we left off last week. And so the people are not giving up. They want Pilate to say, Jesus must die. John 19 to 3 is where we look at the beginning of this week and we see an abusing and a mocking of King Jesus. We might be confused because Pilate did seem conflicted. Remember Pilate told them I find no guilt in him and so we might be confused by verse 1 that says then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Well, if Pilate is convinced that Jesus is not guilty, why is Pilate having Jesus flogged here? Also, the people wanted Jesus put to death, so why is Pilate just flogging him? Probably the best explanation of that is this, that there were different purposes of flogging and different severities of flogging that took place. So when we read in Mark chapter 15, verse 15, about Jesus being flogged, This is taking place after he was already sentenced. And this is, in Mark 15, a very severe form of flogging that Jesus endured. Here, this type of flogging, before a sentence has even been handed down, is the type of flogging that it seems that Pilate's motivation was this. Pilate wanted to appease the Jewish people. They wanted him to condemn Jesus as guilty. He wasn't convinced of their guilt. He didn't want to give him the death penalty, but he thought maybe if I have him flogged, they'll let him go at that point. And so it's a less severe form of flogging. And maybe he wants to teach Jesus a lesson. Maybe he wants to appease the crowd. But either way, Jesus is flogged. And the soldiers, given some freedom and having some power, use that freedom and that power for evil purposes. The power, the authority that's been given to them, they take it and what they do is they mock and abuse Jesus. The soldiers, it says in verse 2, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. "...and arrayed him in a purple robe." Again, see the contrast. We know that Jesus deserves to be wearing a crown because he is king. We know that Jesus deserves to be wearing the color of royalty because he is king. But they do this in a mocking way. The crown is made out of thorns intended to hurt him. They put on a, a purple robe intended to, to humiliate him. They're going to be mocking Jesus, coming up to him saying, "...Hail, King of the Jews," as they strike him with their hands." Jesus deserves a crown and a robe, and He deserves praise, and instead He is being abused, and He is being mocked. He does not deserve this. And a quick point of application before we move on. I have no doubt that there are people sitting in here today who have endured mockery and even abuse. Perhaps it came in the form of a parent or some other relative or a spouse who hurt you with their words, who hurt you with some part of their body. Perhaps they made you feel like you deserved it. Perhaps you have felt humiliated and feel humiliated still. And all I can say is that I'm sorry that what they did is wrong, that you did not deserve it, that it is not your fault. If you need help because it's still happening, let's get you some help. And I also need to encourage you to run to Jesus. Isn't it so good that we have a Savior who knows what that feels like, who knows your pain, who has been mocked, who has been beaten, who has been humiliated? unto Jesus. Let's continue. They're not done with Jesus yet, and so we get to verses 4-8 to eight as we see Him condemned. It tells us then that Pilate goes back out to them and says to them, Jesus now, having been beaten, wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, he brings Jesus back out. See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is now the second time that Pilate said this. I find no guilt in him. Pilate wants them to let Jesus go. He's given them multiple opportunities, it seems. And he thinks that maybe now, Jesus coming out, Wearing this crown of thorns, wearing this purple robe, looking now beat up and looking very powerless and weak. He thinks that now they might say, okay, I guess he's not all that much of a threat, let him go. That's why he says to them, behold the man. (laughs) This is the one that you're scared of? This is the one you see as a threat. This is the one you want me to have put to death. I find no guilt in him. Behold the man. Now again, the contrast. Reality, should we be looking at Jesus and saying, Behold, get your gaze fixed on him. Yes, we should. But he's doing it in what seems to be a mocking kind of way. Behold the man. And when the chief priests and officers saw him, verse 6 says, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. They're not backing down. This is what they came hoping would happen. And regardless of all of the attempts that Pilate has made to, to, to steer them in a different direction, they're still dead set on this. Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. He's telling them now for the third time. I don't find any guilt in him. If you need to do this, then you go ahead and do it. The Jews then answered him, we have a law. And it's true, they had a law. It's written in Leviticus 24, 16. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Jesus is claiming not just to be king, Jesus is claiming to be God. We've seen that all throughout the gospel of John and They're seeing that certainly as a threat, even as blasphemy. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he had made himself the son of God. And then it tells us this in verse 8. John writes this, When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Remember Pilate's job. He's there as a representative of the Roman Empire to keep peace in the region with all of these Jewish people. Certainly, it doesn't look like A peaceful kind of time right now as the crowds are crying out for this innocent man to be crucified. But it tells us after they said this, when they talked about Jesus making himself the Son of God, it's at this point that Pilate becomes even more afraid. Why is Pilate more afraid? Well, the text doesn't tell us for sure. But if Pilate is like most other people in the Roman Empire, he would have been very superstitious and kind of religious, worshiping a number of different gods. And if, in fact, Jesus is the son of some god, and he just had him flogged, all of a sudden, there's some fear that's welling up in Pilate. He's got the people against him. Now he might even have some gods against him. Right? Pilate is afraid, and Jesus is being Condemned. So he's going to step back inside and get away from the crowd for a bit. The next point I call the king speaks because Jesus is going to speak for the only time in this passage. Jesus is going to speak, but he doesn't speak right away. Did you notice that when we read through it that Jesus entered his headquarters? Or sorry, Judas entered. Not Judas. You get it straight, Jeremy. Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Earlier when Pilate was questioning Jesus, Jesus would often answer Pilate's question with another question. And now Pilate asks a question, and Jesus doesn't say a thing. Remember that we saw last week, it seems that one of the reasons that Jesus would answer questions with questions and not directly, and that Jesus wouldn't even answer a question, at all right here, is because Jesus said, Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Earlier in John 10, he said, All who are my sheep hear my voice. Pilate was not in a position where he was ready to hear the truth about who Jesus was and what he had come to do. And so no matter how Jesus would answer a question, Pilate was not ready to hear the real and truthful answer. And so, Jesus gives him no answer. And then, Pilate, maybe annoyed, maybe angered, maybe frustrated by what Jesus just said, says this, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate's looking at Jesus with wonder. (laughs) Don't you know who I am? I hold your life in my hands. I have the authority to release you, or I have the authority to crucify you. I'm giving you a chance, and you're saying nothing? He doesn't get Jesus. Jesus answered him. Here's where Jesus speaks. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus needs Pilate to know this. Pilate, you need to know. You think, oh, I I work under Caesar. I, I hold your life in my hands. And Jesus says, you would have no authority at all if it had not been given to you by one from above, a greater authority. And then he also says this, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So we're reminded of two things here in this part as Jesus speaks. Jesus is reminding Pilate that God alone has sovereign authority. And we're reminded that in this case, there are people who are sinning. We can't even be totally sure who Jesus is referring to here. He says he. Who's he? Therefore, he Who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Pilate is sinning in some way, but there's one who's sinning in a greater way, Jesus says, and it's the one who delivered him over to Pilate. Does that mean Judas? It could. Does that mean Caiaphas, the high priest who said, send him to Pilate? It could be him as well. Maybe Annas, the the former high priest. Regardless, we know two things from what Jesus said. That God has sovereign authority over all things, and people are guilty of sin. Do we see that here? And we're not surprised to see that here because we see that all over Scripture. So, quick application because I think this applies to us today. I want to first just ask you some questions, and I already put the answers up on the board. So, it's the easiest kind of questions. Okay. In John 19, is God sovereign? over every detail of what's happening here in John 19? Answer, yes. Is all of this going according to God's eternal plan? Answer, yes. Are the things that are taking place here cruel and unjust and sinful? Yes. Are the people who are doing these cruel and unjust things guilty of and responsible for their sin? Yes. Does God's sovereignty mean that God is causing sin or they are no longer responsible for their sin? No. Okay? So, so that's what we see to be true here in John 19. And, and think about our world today. Think about this for a second. You don't have to answer if you don't want. Think about it for a second. Is God sovereign over every detail of global and national politics, including what's happening at work this week? Yes. Is all of this going according to His eternal plan? Yes. Are there things taking place in our nation, in our workplaces, in our homes that are cruel and unjust and sinful? Yes. Are the people who are doing these cruel and unjust things guilty of and responsible for their sin? Yes. And does God's sovereignty mean that God is causing sin or that they are no longer responsible for their sin? The answer is no. We see this all throughout Scripture, we see this all throughout history, and we see this in our day. It's good for us to know these things, that people are sinning, and those who sin are guilty of and responsible for their sin. We live in a culture where people are quick to shift blame and responsibility to someone else for something else. We are individually responsible for our sin. And God is sovereign, and sovereign in such a way that He is sovereign over all things, yet without causing sin. They seem to understand this. The disciples did. The early disciples, even Peter, who early on didn't seem to understand a lot of things, but when he gets a chance to preach on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, here's what Peter preaches to the Jews. This Jesus delivered up according to... The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What's happening here in John 19 is not taking God by surprise. It is part of his definite plan and foreknowledge. And yet the Jewish people who are doing it and others are responsible. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Later in Acts, Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, this is not somebody preaching. This is God's people praying together. And as God's people are praying together, they pray this to God. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So they're praying, and they're recounting in their prayer the way it was. That there is on one side Jesus... And on the other side, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, and the people of Israel all standing together against Jesus. All of them sinning, all of them guilty for their unjust actions. But they were also doing whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. So we need to wrestle with, because this is a hard to get our minds around, but wrestle with because we see these truths there, then in John 19. The early believers saw these things. We've seen them throughout history, and we see them today. This truth that God is sovereign and people are sinning. Let's go to the final point. Final point is this Who is king? Who is king? John 19. 12 to 16. Jesus has spoken just once. Pilate is wavering. The crowd is opposed to Jesus loudly. And so we come to this last section wondering will the condemning crowd get Pilate to finally rubber stamp their, their decision, their plan to condemn Jesus to death? Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. We still see Pilate, don't we, as this kind of conflicted man. The crowd causing him to kind of lean in this way, but Pilate seeking to release Jesus. They decide, though, they've got to to get Pilate to agree with them. What are they going to do? How are they going to get Pilate to agree with him? Listen to what they do. The Jews cried out. This is verse 12 still. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They're trying to use Pilate's fear against him. Because if you are working for Caesar, and you're found not to be a friend of Caesar, you don't just get to like lose a little bit of paid time off. Right? You don't lose a couple of vacation days and get a dock in pay. You get killed if you're working for Caesar and are found to be not a friend of Caesar. And because they're desperate to get Pilate on their side to condemn Jesus, they're going to go ahead and use this against him. Listen, Pilate, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king, which is what they're saying Jesus is doing, opposes Caesar. What if this gets back to your boss, Pilate? What if he finds out that you let Jesus go? This Jesus who claimed to be a king it's not going to be good for you, Pilate. Using his fear against him. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. And think, look at this irony here. What does Pilate do? He sits down on the judgment seat. Pilate. Pilate sits down on the judgment seat. Who's being judged? Jesus. Who's sitting on the judgment seat? Pilate. Backwards, isn't it? Move on to verse 14. It tells us this. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. And it was about the sixth hour. Now, we could quickly read over that, but I want to point out a couple of things for those of you that are, are students of Scripture that, that come with hard questions. That's good. There's some hard questions that we need to just quickly address, because some of you are like, I'm not really concerned. That's fine with me that he says it that way. But there's a couple of things that might pop into your mind if you're a student of Scripture here, and John is telling us that at this moment, it was the day of preparation, the day of preparation of the Passover. when did Jesus and his disciples eat the Passover meal? Thursday night the night before this. when is this happening? Friday. Why is he saying it's the day of the preparation of the Passover? I think a pretty simple explanation it's not clear when you just read it and so so that's why we need a quick explanation and the explanation is this that the day of preparation, was a day that took place every week. Friday was called the day of preparation for the day that was the Sabbath. Every week, the Jewish people observed the Sabbath. Every week, that day was Saturday. And every week, the day of preparation, where you do all this extra work to prepare for the Sabbath, that was Friday. The day of preparation of the Passover is not talking about preparing for the Passover, but remember how we talked about last week. Passover was a meal one night, but it was part of a week-long feast. And so this whole week is the Passover week, and the day of preparation of the Passover, this is the Friday of Passover week. Right? So that's the explanation of that. The other explanation is this. And again, if you're reading different Gospels, remember that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all giving us an account of what was taking place. And all of them share a lot of detail about these hours. And if you are reading John's Gospel, John is saying this was taking place at about the sixth hour. Notice he says about. That word is in there in Greek. They're not just adding it in an English translation. In Greek, John wrote down about the sixth hour. If you read in Mark's gospel, you would find in Mark's gospel that Jesus was crucified on the third hour. What, what's going on here? Well, I think what's going on here is we just need to acknowledge that uh, they didn't have watches. <laughs> that, that, that in the midst of all of the other details of everything else that's going on in that time, he's trying to give some markers as far as time goes. John's recollection seems to be as about the sixth hour this was happening, noon or so. Uh, and, and Mark's recollection is the crucifixion is happening uh, in the morning sometime, about nine. And so, so, yeah, it doesn't seem right away like, oh, well, those, those are two different hours. Some people have described it, well, maybe, maybe John was using Roman time, which started earlier. So they would say the sixth hour is like 6 a.m. Well, that would kind of make sense. Uh, a little bit more, Um, but it also doesn't seem super likely that John would use suddenly uh, Roman time in the middle of all of this. That's a possibility. Probably the the best possibility is that uh, they're not precise about the time, which is why he uses the word about. It was about the sixth hour, and it actually doesn't cause me to trust any less in the authority of Scripture. It actually helps me to trust it more, because if they were just, if there's like this whole big conspiracy, And John was just like, I want to make sure that I'm getting every, so then he's just going to like look at Mark's and copy Mark's gospel because Mark's gospel was written first. So I want to make sure that I have all the same information. Well, no, John is, from his perspective, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he's remembering, I think this was happening about the the, the sixth hour, and Mark was remembering this happening uh, at a different time earlier in the day. You know, if it's cloudy, who knows what time it is when you don't have a watch on. Just need to acknowledge when there's things that, man, that's hard to understand. Uh, I don't think it's impossible to explain. There's some things that are hard to explain that maybe I don't have an answer to right now. Um, it was about the sixth hour. Regardless, I want to get to the point. That's just details, important details. But I want to get to the point because here's what's happening. Now, Pilate, who earlier said, behold, the man, is uh, having Jesus stand before them and says, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And we ought to be shocked at the words of the chief priests. These are the chief religious leaders of their day. And if you heard this as a Jewish person, what these chief priests said, you would be appalled. Here's what they just said. They said to Pilate, caught up in the moment, we have no king but Caesar. All throughout the scriptures, God has made it clear that he alone is to be king of his people. And their hope was in this Messiah king who would come in the line of David. But here the chief priests, the chief religious leaders are saying, we have no king but Caesar. Only king we have is the one ruling the Roman Empire. And the result? Jesus is delivered over to them to be crucified. Them probably meaning the officers and soldiers that are standing there watching all of this. Next week we're going to go through all the rest of chapter 19 and go through all the details of Jesus' crucifixion and his burial. But we end with a bit of application. Here we see a passage full of contrasts. We we see this is how Jesus ought to be welcomed and received, but instead, Jesus is beaten, mocked, and scorned. Jesus, who is the true king, and Jesus, who is the true judge, is being judged, and his people are saying, we only have one king, and it's Caesar. There's all sorts of contrasts in this passage. The good news is it's soon going to become clear that those who are standing opposed to Jesus are wrong. Jesus will have the final word the judgment seat. Remember that? When Pilate sat on the judgment seat, he sits down. He condemns Jesus from the judgment seat. The reality is the judgment seat is reserved for Jesus. We can read about that in Revelation 20, among other places, where John writes, then I saw a great white throne, him who was seated on it From his presence, earth and sky fled away. This doesn't happen when Pilate sits down on the judgment seat. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Jesus alone deserves to sit on the judgment seat. And Jesus alone is the king. Certainly, although Pilate would brag that he has a whole lot of authority, he's simply a people-pleasing puppet. And he has no authority compared to our King Jesus. The throne is not for Caesar, not for any people-pleasing puppet like, Pe- like, like, like Pilate to sit on. Not for any earthly king or ruler or dictator. Not for any president. The throne is reserved for Jesus and Jesus alone. We could go all over scripture to see that, but we see it pretty clearly in Revelation chapter 4, where John has another vision. And in this vision, he sees these living creatures giving glory, honor, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. And these elders that are around their throne... These ones who have been given uh, a great degree of reward and authority, what do they do? They cast their crowns before the throne. Any any earthly power that we might have, any earthly reward that we might have, we're going to all come before the throne of Jesus and cast that down before him. Because we know this, worthy are you, our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Jesus is the only one who deserves to be on the throne. And so, is this applicable for us today? It certainly is, in a world where we see people sinning and we still need to believe that God is sovereign, in a world where abuse is real and we need to know that Jesus knows our pain in a world where all sorts of people would sit as judge, and all sorts of people have all sorts of authority, but we need to know, and you need to know, not just we, you need to know, that Jesus is the one true judge and the one true king. Do you know Jesus as the one true judge and the one true king? Are you confident that when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he will look on you and see not only your deeds, but see the deeds of, of himself, of what he himself has done, that you might be welcomed into his presence because of his righteousness. Do you have confidence? Are you living now as though you're no longer king, that the throne's not for you, but the throne's for Jesus? Do you live in that way? If not, we need to talk. There's nothing more important for you to figure out in your life than who is judge and who is king. It is Jesus He alone is our Savior. If you don't trust in Him, let's talk about that. And if you do, what should our response be? It's hard to know how to look at a passage like this, isn't it? To look at something like John 19 and to see Jesus being abused and mocked. Next week we're going to see Him put to death on the cross. This is so unfair. This is so unjust. And yet we sing about it. It's, it's, hard. it's hard to figure out how to react to this. But let me tell you, I, I think worship is a right response. We're going to sing a song in a little bit that helps us with that. I'm going to pray, and then I'm actually going to walk us through the words of the song, and then we're going to sing it. So while I pray, the worship team will come up to get ready to lead us through that. Let's pray together, Father. I'm just so thankful. that we can know Jesus. I'm so thankful that Jesus knows us and he knows and has experienced our pain, even the pain of those who have been mocked and abused, who feel humiliated, who are hurt, who wonder if the hurt's ever going to go away. Thank you for the good news that Jesus knows, Jesus has felt, And Jesus cares. Jesus, uh, I thank you that you were willing to do all of this for us. That there wasn't one moment where, where things got out of hand. But that all of this happened according to the eternal plan of God the Father. We know it all happened for our good. Because we needed one to come and stand in our place. Otherwise... We would keep living like we were our own kings. And we would fail when we stand before the judgment seat. So God, we need your son. And I thank you so much that you've given us exactly what we need. And so we count it a great privilege to spend our lives, to spend certainly like three minutes now worshiping him in song, but then to spend our lives declaring his greatness magnifying Him above all else because of what He's done for us. We're grateful people. In Jesus' name, amen.